Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Pushkin. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. Joe Henry is likely one of the best living singer-songwriters that you've never heard of. But even if you don't recognize his name, you've probably heard his work. He's been at it for 34 years, having released 15 solo albums, won three Grammys, and produced music for the likes of Elvis Costello, Mavis Staples, Bonnie Raitt, and his sister-in-law, Madonna. Yeah, that Madonna. During her cowgirl phase in the early 2000s, she turned Joe's song Stop into her hit Don't Tell Me. Joe Henry's latest studio album, his 15th, the Gospel According to Water, was released in November, almost exactly a year after he was diagnosed with stage 4 prostate cancer. In this interview with Bruce Hedlum, Joe talks about the artist who gave him strength after his diagnosis, and also about working with Elvis Costello and the late great New Orleans legend Alan Toussaint just weeks after Katrina. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and Joe Henry from Pasadena, California. Joe starts things off by playing something from his new album, a song called The Fact of Love. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Uh, and that was 
uh, a song from your new album, which we want to talk about. But by way of introduction, longtime singer, songwriter, probably one of the best songwriters of the last 1,000 years or so. Oh. <laughs> uh, so tell me about that song first. The Fact of Love, it's called. It was the last thing I wrote before um, recording the new album. Uh, when I recorded this new record, I did not know I was making a record. I I needed to record some demos. I had this rush of new songs. I'd never had a batch of songs appear so quickly um, to the point where I'd not even made iPhone demos, you know, to keep track of the basic architecture. And I can't read or write music. So when I learn something, it's you, sort you, of... You've never learned... No, I wish I no? had. I wish I had. H how do you... How I do write you the lyrics down and then I just think that if I go back to them, it, the music will be embedded. <laughs> uh, and mostly it is. Once in a while, something slips away, which is why I try to get in the habit of making a really just rough phone recording of something when it's brand new. But these songs came in such a flurry that I would have a new song and think, oh, I should just quickly um, sketch this out. And then another song would begin to appear. And I think, oh, I, I better pay attention to this one, and then I'll just do both of them. Well, pretty soon I had 10 or 11 songs that had no reference at all other than lyrics written on a page. And I thought, I really need to, to document this in some way so I don't forget them, and also so that I can stand back and evaluate them in some way, which you can't just do as readily when you're performing them to hear them. So I went to an old friend's studio downtown and um, just blew through everything with a few friends. Um, didn't even listen to playbacks of much of it, just trying to get them down. And I got home with them and realized that something more had happened. Um, but all to say that the songs came in such a rush, Bruce, that at one point I just wanted them to stop. Um, which is not a common thing for a songwriter to think ever. Say, aspiring songwriters across no, we America don't. right now are saying, oh, they just showed up, didn't no. they? Um, Somebody just dumped yeah. them on the front lawn. <laughs> Sometimes they grow up like dandelions overnight. You'd be amazed. Um, but I really needed to get them in hand. I really wanted to play through them enough to get fluid with them. And it's a really different engagement for me to be practicing finished songs than writing songs. Mm -hmm. Maybe two days before these sessions that were supposed to be demos, uh, my wife was finishing a piece of sculpture. She's a, a visual artist. And I said, I was walking past and I said, there's a piece of unearthed stone that looked like a torso. And she was painting on top of it. And I said, what do you call that? And she said, um, it's called the fact of love. And I remember just going, fuck. <laughs> I hear it sounds spring-loaded. I know that if I pay attention to this for a moment, that there's a song there. And there mm -hmm. was, and very quickly. Um, and once I finished that one, I kind of thought, okay, that's, that feels like a pretty complete bracket when I think about what the earliest of these songs is. And I, I really realized that that needed to happen, and then I could s step away from that part of the process. Mm-hmm. Was your wife happy you took the title for... Uh, I think she was. She I didn't mean, change I, the name of it to uh, My Pending Divorce. <laughs> she did not. <laughs> she, I, I think she was um, pl really pleased. Um, you know, I find a lot of songwriting begins that way for me. A phrase, an image, a word that I don't know how else to describe it, except that it is spring-loaded. And I have this sensation that very much like opening a bottle of champagne, you sort of get one time for the cork to really pop. And if you're not prepared mm. to deal with 
with that. You don't you don't engage that because it'll go flat. Did that um, that opening phrase and some of the guitar work? Did that come with the initial song, or those things you put on later, or was that on a separate track somewhere? Oh, how did that? How did that? Does it come together? As it a- happens differently all the time, Bruce. But in the case of that song, I'd heard that title late in the evening. The next morning, I was up very early. It was still dark, and I picked up a notebook and I just remember kind of writing essentially those three verses in chorus. Just wrote it down like I was taking dictation. A lot of the records sort of appeared this way. And for whatever reason, and this is not common necessarily, I walked through the room. I have a lot of guitars laying around and picked one up, put the capo on the fourth fret as if I knew that that's where it lived. Melodically, as a key, I didn't know that. I had no reason to think it was an F sharp. I just put the capo there for some... Uh, unknown reason, and just put the guitar in my lap and played that opening motif. I didn't think about it. I just reached, and it was sort of there. Mm. Um, I'm making the saw sound very mystical, because it is. I'm not being evasive. It's just the way that it happens. You know, there's a there's an inherent quality to music, as there is to living, that is inherently mysterious and. I do think, and I've said it um, in other moments, our job is never to dispel mystery. Our job is to abide mystery and stand with it, um, be in alliance with it, because um, there's a big part about living that is just inherently mysterious, always has been, always shall be. And the sooner we make peace with the fact that there is something else at play that we do not control, I think the more we can sort of be in collaboration with whatever um, life is asking. You know, I think back to um, Joseph Campbell when he said, you have to let go of the life you imagine so you can have the one that's actually waiting for you. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain kind of surrender that I think is essential um, to, to almost all productive living, but creative life in particular. You know, you just sort of have to surrender into process and I don't mean surrender as in resignation. I mean surrender as in radical acceptance. Speaking of resignation, radical acceptance, mm-hmm. uh, you had a tough year and a half. Do you want to explain uh, a little bit of that? Sure. Uh, a year ago, um, Thanksgiving. So, you know, what? what is that? Uh, 14 months ago, something like that. I got a diagnosis of uh, stage four prostate cancer. And uh, when I got that phone call, and it really was like a movie, you know, picking up the phone very innocently one day, you know, I felt like Bob Newhart. Hello. Um, (laughs) And and there it was, you know, it's like somebody opened a door onto a cyclone and my family and I all stepped into it. Uh, it, I was not prepared, even though I'd been in some, I'd had back pain for well over a year. I had been misdiagnosed three times. And I also, you know, I'm a touring musician in my late 50s, and I was in a really serious car crash when I was a teen. So I, back pain is something I've just sort of learned to live with. It's not um, intense, but it's present. It has been enough, often enough that it was easy for me to think, I've just come off the biggest touring cycle of my entire working life, and I don't know any musician in their late 50s who tours who doesn't have 
back issues. It was easy to just sort of accept that it was no significant thing until it was. And next thing I know, there's somebody, I'm sitting in front of a doctor who very irresponsibly, I've I've learned, he had very little to go on, just sort of blurted out to my wife and I uh, that he thought I had like three to seven months to live. You know, and I lived with that as a new truth, you know, for a full week until I met my oncologist that I work with at UCLA, who assured me that's not, in fact, what I was forced to accept. You know, he said, I look at, you know, I look at your whole life, not just this diagnosis. And, you know, I think of this as as chronic disease management. It's not a terminal diagnosis. We help a lot of people like you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really did live through, uh, you know, a week of real terror. The terror didn't end there. Um, it changed shape, became a little bit more stealth. Um, but I still had a, you know, a, a pretty rough go. And even though I responded to treatment almost immediately, I mean, almost immediately I was out of pain um, physically. But the psychic specter of, of that shadow is something real. And it it changed me, you know? I mean, it's kind of supposed to. <laughs> uh, what did it do to your songwriting during that time? Um, I was writing with a new urgency. I've always written a lot. I try to be writing all the time. It doesn't mean that I always finish a lot of things. But at the time when it was first diagnosed and my wife, Melanie, was encouraging me to maybe seek out a support group. There's a lot of good ones around. They help a lot of people. And I said, look, I don't know that I won't get there eventually, but that's not how I process things. I don't see that as my path right now. I, I'm i going to have to write my way through this because writing is how I sort of process anything of significance in my life. And I realized that the way that fear and sadness had put a cap on my imagination, every time I could get something going, whether it was a poem or a song, that my imagination reengaged. I could see beyond what felt like an immediate and and restricting way of thinking. And all of a sudden, sort of psychically, the doors and windows were open again. And I could see beyond, you know, just the immediate fear uh, of a moment. And so I just kept writing. And I know in, in retrospect that I was writing to live because that's that reconnected me to myself in a way that my diagnosis when it first happened cut me off from who I believed myself truly to be. Um, did it? Were there days, though, that that fear just closed all that down? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I still have days like that where I'm not fit company for, for anybody. Um, there's less and less of that because I'm in remission now. I feel better than I have felt in a, in a couple years, actually. Mm-hmm. Last year, I felt like I at the beginning of the year, I was in a trench. And I, this year kind of feels like it be, has begun, like I've, I've been shot out of a cannon, mm. you know. When you were in that trench, what music did you listen to? A lot of Louis Armstrong, a lot of Charlie Parker, a lot of Robert Johnson. Those were, um, I've always been really important musicians for me, but for, for uh, I started to say for whatever reason is if I don't know. Um, well, what was the reason that, that they um, were? Because... Uh, those artists in particular, I feel that their humanity is so rawly and viscerally available. 
you know, I hear music that was recorded last month and it already sounds like, a, you know, an artifact, like one of those mosquitoes they bring out of the pyramids trapped in amber, you know? I can see it, but it's not alive for me. Mm -hmm. And every time I've listened to Robert Johnson, and I've been listening to him since I was 15, he sounds like a living person jumping out of a speaker. Charlie Parker does that to me too. I can't, it's not background to me. It is like somebody walking into a room. And I am endlessly affirmed by the spirit of that music, not to mention the fact that certainly in the case of Bird, he was in other respects not the most functional adult in the room. You know, he was a he was a disturbed and troubled man, yet not in spite of, but I think because of he put so much raw beauty into the world. And it makes me think a lot about the African-American experience in particular, where I look back at some of my greatest, greatest heroes, you know, Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington um, in particular, and think about the brutality that they experienced. And yet their response to it was incredible beauty. We'll be right back after this break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. We're back with more of Bruce's conversation with Joe Henry. You know, you describe yourself primarily as a sort of a storyteller, and you, you reject the kind of confessional model of songwriting. I think you've literally said, and I, I have the quote here, uh, the greatest misconception of American popular music, that if you're being honest, you're being entertaining. Mm -hmm. um, and you tend to tell stories even the, in, in your own work, even in the first and second person, but they're, they're obviously about characters. Yeah. 
Um, did that change a little with this album? Are there are there elements of this album you feel came directly out of your recent experience? Well, there's always elements I can recognize after the fact. I don't often and don't want to be aware of that when I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, there are things I now look back and go, well, that, that's really obvious to me why in that moment that's what would appear. But um, look, for starters, Bruce, I think that that all artistry, regardless of the medium, is storytelling. From the most abstract painting to mm-hmm. film to, you know, I think it's all storytelling. It's not all linear narrative Um and yet they all seem to provoke or want to provoke some sense of narrative that we reach for. And I think musically is especially potent because it, you know, it's not nailed to the floor. You know, Ingmar Bergman said that all art aspires to work the way that music works, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it's it it's there's no defense against it. It appears like weather mm-hmm. and it changes the day. Um, and I think certainly the songs that have been most important to me my whole listening life are songs that are specific enough to engage me and make me think of that something real is transpiring, but they're not so overt as to nail everything to the floor. There's not just one way to enter and accept this story. Mm-hmm. I know that as a writer, I'm fairly impressionistic. Uh, I do think I come out of a very particular folk tradition and when I say folk, I'm saying that very broadly. I'm not, you know, I mean, Woody Guthrie was a folk singer. So is Joe Strummer, you know. Uh, so was Bob Marley, you know. So was Louis Armstrong, you know. But, but it's funny that in in uh, only just a few years ago, I had a brand new record out. I'm trying to think which one it was. Maybe it was Reverie. Anyway, I had performed the whole of it the night before in Los Angeles, and my son was in town from Brooklyn. He plays with me frequently. And I was sitting out in the front yard uh, under a big pine tree the next morning with with my wife, Melanie, and my son, Levon. And my wife, you know, we've been together, we've been married almost 33 years. We've been together longer than that. And I met her when I was 16 and she was 15. She said, it finally dawned on me, and I don't know why it took me so long, that you were a Southern writer. You know, I mean, I'm from... North Carolina originally, mm-hmm. I didn't really come of age there, but it is part of my DNA. Both my parents are natives of North Carolina. And she said, all the, you know, Eudora Welty, Flannery O'Connor, um, that all makes sense to me now in a way that it didn't before. And I don't know what it was about that batch of songs, that performance that allowed her to hear me as coming out of a tradition of Southern writers. Were your parents Southerners? They are. And still are? Still they? are. They're still with us, and they still they moved back to North Carolina. You know, we we moved around a lot when I was young. My father was a an executive engineer for Chevrolet, and not true anymore. But back in the day, if you were a lifer in that racket, you know, all roads led to Detroit. Mm-hmm. So we moved to Detroit area just as I was beginning high school, the summer before my tenth grade year. So that would have been summer of seventy five. And my wife, Melanie, um, her family lived there. We went to the same high school. I met her there. I was friends with two of her older sisters before I met her. But um, I feel like I came of age, you know, among the Great Lakes. But I do know that in my core, I am, I am a Southerner. 
even though I've spent a lot of my early life trying to distance myself from that legacy, because what I thought about the South as a young person was not something I was proud of. Uh, your parents were also devout, weren't they? They are. My my parents are Southern Methodists. Oh, is that right? So I was, I was, you know, I went to church as a young person, just like I went to school, which means if I wasn't sick, that's where I went mm -hmm. until I was, you know, 15 and my older brother, David was 17. Um, we were very close. And at that point of our lives, we were staying up, you know, terribly late of a Saturday night, listening to music and such. And, um, it was one Sunday my mother came and tried to rouse us out, and we were not sprightly. And she said, well, I'm not going to force you to go. And I said, you're not? She said, you're 15. You have to make your own decisions about this. And then I, I, didn't, I didn't return. Mm -hmm. uh, I want you to play another song, but first I do have a, a bone to pick with you. And Let's this, have it. Which is, I think, maybe the first song I ever heard of yours was mm -hmm. the Ohio mm -hmm. uh, plane crash. And... I mean, I, that song I just thought was incredible. It captured an experience so beautifully because when I was a kid, I saw a plane crash oh. at an air show on Lake Ontario. And then I found out years later, you made the whole thing up. I did. Isn't <laughs> well, it better that well, I did? It made, well, <laughs> you, you either, either that or I now can only remember that experience yeah. Through your song. But your song is about a kid, right? Because their legs well, are dangling. Um, and, and... You know, what that song was about for me, if I throw my mind back there, um, was the idea. And it's in some ways, it's it, it, it hinges on a concept that I learned from, again, I'm talking about, I talk a lot about short story writers. They've been as impactful to me as songwriters. Um, it's something I learned from both Raymond Carver and Alice Monroe, and I just talk endlessly about Alice Monroe. I, I love her. Um, but this concept of of telling a dramatic story in decidedly undramatic language, and the idea of the Ohio Airshow plane crash was that with this tragedy as a backdrop, there's an estranged couple sort of you know, living within each other's proximity, not necessarily comfortably in a, in a shared moment. Mm -hmm. And so I thought the idea of staging this kind of bland disconnect between two lovers while as a backdrop, this plane crashes, you know, the plane crash is not the story. Mm -hmm. The couple's estrangement is the story. The character speaking has is estranged from his lover and he's at this gathering, this, you know, holiday, this... Uh, air show and sees his ex in the in the crowd and he's and oh, he's sort of okay. reflecting on you know not you know that odd magnetic pull or maybe the opposite side of a magnet that mm -hmm. is that you still feel that that there's energy happening but it's repelling it's repellent it's not you know mm -hmm. connecting uh could you play another song for us and then we'll i can i played you the the last song that i wrote for the new record i'm going to play you the the earliest of them. All right. My wife and I were uh, last fall for two months on the west coast of Ireland. I was invited to do a writing residency at a small art college. I was starting to have real pain episodes then. I don't mean to lean too heavily into that. It just was a it was a specter of of what was happening, even though I didn't I didn't know what weight to give it. 
But uh, I only bring it up now because I hear the song now completely sharing the same language of the songs that followed after I knew what was going on. Mm. And I just think, I feel like in some way, you know, my my body knew, the songs knew something uh, before I consciously knew something. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You should have gone to the doctor and said, listen to this. Yeah, I should have. <laughs> what do you think something's of this, Doc? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is called Mule. Based on our conversation, I don't want you to overinterpret your own work, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I would like to know where the line Silence Deep to Sound came from. Well, in this little village where we were on the west coast of Ireland called Ballyvaughan, um, it just became really evident to me two things. While I was there, the silence that I heard there was unlike how I thought to characterize silence. You know, it is not just the void of sound. Silence itself has a character. And I was really aware that the silence I was hearing um, was not fragile. It couldn't be just defeated by a random sound. A random sound, a cow, a, a truck, a train, you know, nothing ended the silence. It just punctuated it. It let me know something about its character, its depth. But I realized that, that there was a silence there that was part of the landscape, part of the culture. It also makes me think of your own recording uh, style. You've produced a lot of mm -hmm. records. You tend, you, you record very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you tend to do it with people sitting in a room playing, mm -hmm. this, the sound bleeds. Why do you like that sound? Uh, because it's human. You know, if people were sitting in this room playing music together, there's a, a you know, there's sort of a Venn di diagram where things overlap. And if you're sitting here, you read it very naturally um, that, that you know, the harmonic overtones of an instrument bleed into those of another. But when people in so-called modern recording world, you know, this idea of isolating everything and then when you're mixing, trying to use reverbs and delays and such to recreate an atmosphere that was very naturally and more compellingly actually in the room, if you knew how to take that picture. Mm. I just find that endlessly um, enchanting. I don't know why. I mean, uh, I know that on the records that I've made and a lot of older records that I love, you know, a lot of what the drums sound like is how they're hitting the piano mic across the room. And that describes space. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear people play in a room together. You hear the the size of the room. You know the difference between them playing in a like a gymnasium sized studio and in a living room. You know, when sound finds limits of walls and ceiling, you know it. You it's describing space. I like to be able to picture where people are. Place matters, and I I can vividly imagine where this is taking place. You know, those records where some of the energy is understood because of the limitation of the room, how instruments are colliding. I think about the, uh, a record called Money Jungle that Duke Ellington made in the early 70s with Max Roach and Charles Mingus. Mm. And it's an intense record. You know, these upstarts of Mingus and, and Max Roach, you know, playing, you know, with this grand gentleman. He was the wildest of them. Duke was the most adventurous of all of them. But you can really hear the sound hit each other and hit the walls. You can feel natural compression of the space. And mm -hmm. I like being able to picture them on top of each other up close, which they had to have been for that sound to be created. You Before know, we but, started, yeah. I, I 
mention to you that one of my favorite pieces that you produced was uh, Ann Peebles covering Bob Dylan's Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You mm -hmm. from a great, great record you made. Thank you. You had great players and you had Billy Preston and Alan Toussaint and all kinds of people. You said she she wasn't she didn't hear that song. How did you how did you make that song hers? Or how did how did you help her make that song well, hers? I well as I recall, I sent it to her and she was uh, a bit unmoved. Not that she didn't like the song. She just didn't necessarily hear it in the context of the project as I had pitched it. And I just said, I think you're maybe stumbling on the production or Bob's voice. Like you think, oh, that's a country song. But, you know, country music, soul music structurally share so many of the same, so much of the same vocabulary. And all I had to do really was to ask Anne to think of it as a soul song. I said, just try singing through it, you know, at the piano or something. Just try singing through the song and, and maybe not worry about, you know, the reference recording uh and then i think she heard it immediately because hmm. she sent me a demo of just her and a, and, and a piano player playing through it and it was completely gorgeous right i want to just mention two producers you've worked with uh not even as producers just mm -hmm. just to know what you learned from them the mm -hmm. first is alan tisson mm -hmm. uh what was it like working with him did he give you you were producing him at that point yeah. But he produced so many yeah. great, great songs. Uh, yeah. What was that like? Oh, man, how do I talk about that? Alan changed my life, you know? And um, when he passed, I'm, my wife's saying, well, you, you'll never have another friendship like that one. Because hmm. he was a, you know, he was what my Southern people refer to as a touched individual. You know, he was always an only partway of this world. He was always partly of another. He was a bit of a supernatural character. And I just seemed to, when I met him, I just seemed to understand that. We were maybe a very unlikely duo in some ways, but we worked together on many projects over 10 years. You know, we traveled together. I took him to Germany to a festival I was creating, had him play, you know, with Michelle and Degocello at that festival. And you know, when I was producing Aaron Neville, Alan was the piano player. Um, we went to a lot together, e even though, um, truth be told, and I'm not, I don't offer this up with any disrespect to Alan's son and daughter who, you know, were his managers, but they and, and Alan's business partner didn't think that what I was asking Alan to do when I was producing the Bright Mississippi and American Tunes, mm -hmm. you know, that those were not good ideas. They really thought he should walk the other way. And I don't know why, even with his own choir there singing in his ear saying, A.T., I don't know why you're doing this. This is not what you should be doing right now. And then he would say, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to go with him anyway. Mm -hmm. I, I don't really understand that. Um, we seem to have an unspoken understanding of each other. And I thought he was... Uh, miraculous man in many, many ways. And one of the things that inspired me about him was as deep as he'd been in it, you know, he was already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by the time I met him, not that that means anything in particular, mm -hmm. um, other than he was a made man, you know, he was already on the mountain, that he was so willing to be outside of his comfort zone. And he was significantly outside of his comfort zone. He was very uncomfortable coming into those, those pair of records. 
um, he had allowed me, he'd invited me to create a concept for him. And I, in the case of Bright Mississippi, I picked all the music, I populated the room, I gave him these songs to learn as an assignment, you know. And I'm still, I still marvel at the fact that he was willing to go there. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned the little piano break he plays behind Anne in uh, Tonight I'd Be Staying Here With You. And that was something I learned from him right away. It was the first thing I asked of him on that first day. We had cut the tune, and then I had this idea that I wanted him to play a piano break after the bridge. And, okay, he sits at the piano and he plays through, and I go on the talk back nervously and say, would you like to hear that back? And he said, I know what happened. What did you think of it? And I said, I, well, I guess, you know what? I think I need to hear it back. He said, okay, I'll wait. And I listened back and I said, I like it a good bit. Okay, then. But that thing of not really owning what I needed in, you know, under the guise of, oh, you probably want to hear that back. And then I'll base my response on how I think you feel about what you just did. And he, was, he wouldn't have it. He was sort of respectfully insisting that I occupy that chair. Mm -hmm. And he did a few things like that. Like the day Mavis was there, and it was a beautiful reunion between the two of them. And he didn't have to do this at all. But at one point, Ma Mavis speaks to him across the control room, and she was having such a great time. She said, Alan, this is so great being here with you. And when I make my next record, I'm going to come straight down to New Orleans to you. And he said, oh, Mavis, that's fine. But when you do, bring him with you, because he's the reason we're here. He's the reason this is happening. And I thought that was just the most generous thing. It was just overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Just seems like, and I, I, and he had to be impeccably dressed when he said he it too. was always, yeah. always. When we were making the 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 river in reverse, you know, we did most of the work in Los Angeles. But Alan's feeling was, if this record is going to have my name on it, this is only like maybe like ten weeks after Katrina happened. Mm -hmm. He you said, this, and that's the album he did with yeah. Elvis Costello. Yes, and Alan said, if there's any way that any of this project could be done in New Orleans. I want it to be. You know, uh, I don't want to just talk about I hope music comes back. I want to be part of bringing it back. And at that point, we weren't even, Nelvis had threw it to me and said, that's up to you. You're the producer, you know. And I said, look, I don't even know that there's drinking water there. I mean, this is a war zone. Uh, and I called at the time. I, my younger brother, um, his brother-in-law at the time was a doctor in New Orleans. So I got in touch with him and said, what's the scene down there? I mean, is there, is there food? Is there safe water? I don't even, I, you know, the idea that we would come down there, I don't want to feel like a photo op, which it couldn't have because it, it was Alan's home. He had every reason and every right to go want to work there. But I wanted to be respectful of the moment at the same time. And this doctor that I called said, you know, look, if there's any way that you can come and work here, you should. People need to see something other than devastation happening here. Mm. So at, at the very end, we moved the entire camp, you know, for a couple of days down uh, down to New Orleans. And that was just remarkable to be there with him. And I remember, I bring this up because you mentioned the way he was dressed, that when I was packing to go down to New Orleans, late one night after a session, we were leaving the next morning, and I was packing a suit and my wife said, I don't think you know where you're going, you know, and you think you're going to be wearing a suit. And I said, look, if you think Alan's going to step it down 
because of what we're walking into? Mm-hmm. I think you're crazy. And sure enough, when we got down there, he was even more regal. You know, he walked around there like a, you know, like a like a prince from Africa. Yeah, I you was. Know, I was. Just, one, I was once on a plane with him, and yeah. I, you know, I never used to dress yeah. up for planes because I thought, nah, you just want to be comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't one of those guys that wore like a tracksuit. Yeah, yeah. But, but I was with a plane with him, and he, he was he was in line ahead of me, standing ramrod straight in this yeah. beautiful suit, and I said, yeah, I've got to dial it up. Yeah. Look at him. He looks comfortable. Yeah. I don't look comfortable. Yeah. I remember once um, we were in a session somewhere and somebody, I don't know who would have said it, like, Alan, you want to take your jacket off, be more comfortable? And he just wheeled around and said, what in the world makes you think I'm not comfortable? <laughs> <laughs> I'm put another he jacket was, on. <laughs> he, he was so rarely that pointed, but it, I, it was always wonderful moments when he would just be, take you to task, like him saying to me, I know what happened. What do you think about what happened? Uh, do you want to do another song? Sure. I will play um, this song called Orson Welles. We'll be right back with more from Joe Henry after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. We're back with the rest of Bruce's conversation with Joe Henry. But first, let's finish his song, Orson Welles. 
Why is it called Orson Welles? I don't know. Uh, other than just that he was the messenger. He was the delivery system of this song. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember distinctly, my wife and I were flying for the for like 36 hours up to San Francisco to see a really dear friend in a play. And we got on the plane at Burbank. You know, that flight's about 50 minutes long. And I just do what I frequently do. I just open a notebook and um, I just sort of watched my hand write Orson Welles at the top of a page. And I don't know, I mean, I knew I wasn't writing a song about Orson Welles, but for whatever reason, he was an evocative specter. And I knew that if I just, if I listened, he was going to tell me what this song was that that was there to be mm-hmm. written. Are there really great songs? Like, is there a great Beatles song that has no effect on you? And you just think, yeah, it for whatever reason doesn't? <laughs> a lot of them, actually. Really? Not I, a- well, look, I, I like the Beatles just fine. I really do. I like John in particular. Mm-hmm. I like George a lot. But I, the Beatles didn't do to me in real time what they did to most of my peers. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, Who did that for you? Bob. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's probably pretty obvious in a way because his records are so, especially the, his records of the middle 60s, but not only, Desire too, which I think is incredibly underrated. There's a rawness to it. You can't miss. You can't miss the immediacy of it. You know, I hear the Beatles, and they're beautiful records. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not beautiful records, but you know, I hear them. I hear the work, and I'm not as seduced by that as I am when I know that I'm witnessing. You know, like you're driving late at night, and there's all of a sudden you. You've ever had this experience? I had it once. Driving late at night on a freeway somewhere in West Virginia, and there out in the middle of a field is a house completely on fire. <laughs> you know? No. Um, Joni Mitchell wrote a good song about that. Yeah, she did. Um, it's just witnessing something that is immediate and it's urgent what's happening. You know, I listen to just like Tom Thumb's Blues or listen to, uh, you know, Sooner or Later One of Us Must Know or something like I can't miss the that this was like people just fucking hanging on. Like a, I mean, it's a runaway train in a way, mm-hmm. and I, I'm endlessly uh, engaged by that kind of real time urgency, in a way that I'm I'm not so much when I hear careful construction, mm-hmm. you know. Like when I was, you know, really young. I mean, Bob happened to me when I was about eleven, and other music I was hearing at the same time that was like the you know Beatles as an example. I was not. You know, held in thrall in the same way to to the labor I heard of that being constructed as I was in witnessing a house burning mm-hmm. off in a field on the side of a road. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? I'm not it trying does, to be. No, it does yeah. make sense. You're often compared with uh, Robbie Robertson. Mm, I didn't know that. Who is? Who's well, look, a I little... take that very seriously, and I appreciate it. You know, I'm a man who named his son Levon. So okay, I would have traded, and I and people think this is um, a little bit of sacrilege. You know. I would have traded the entirety of the Beatles catalog to have made music from Big Pink, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's music that is both feels spontaneous, but also it's highly polished. Sure. And I don't mind if it's constructed. I just don't want to be, I just don't want to know that it is. I don't want to, I don't want to be telegraphed. Oh, I see. The, the meticulousness of the, of the hand at work. I don't want, I don't want to see the hand at work. I want the mystery to take over and take me over. Look, I'm a Sinatra freak. 
And those are meticulous records. Mm-hmm. You know, he did like 33 takes in a row of Got You Under My Skin. He knew that that was a something to be seized. Yeah. And nonetheless, when I hear it, I hear a moment. I hear like, you know, the house burning. I hear it happening. Sure, I know now, as a more educated person, how that went down. Um, like I said, I just you can still hear it. I want the you know I it's all theater, Bruce. You know it, it's all phony. You know in that regard, <laughs> you know the idea of even people who have this idea of purity. It's like I I record live in a room because I a it's an incredibly uh, financially responsible way to work frequently, and it's the most direct line. If you want the sound of people playing in a room together, then you get people in a room together and they play. Mm-hmm. If that's what you care about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now. You're in the middle of this incredible career. You've done all this brilliant music. You've you've recorded all these brilliant people. Uh, you're still described as you know the critics' darling, and yeah, I know what that know, means. All that stuff. Huh. Um, but you've had you've had the experience with your sister-in-law, uh, who's Madonna. We haven't mentioned that, but she took one of your songs and made a hit. Yeah, big out of points it. for being this far into an interview without bringing her up, by the way. <laughs> Well, I bring it up because (laughs) I actually love that album of hers. And I thought, before I knew it was yours, I thought it was, I think there are a lot of good songs on that album, by Mm -hmm. the way. But, you know, critics, uh, you know, Grill Marcus could be very hard on people for not seizing the biggest possible stage. You know, he said that about Randy Newman. You know, you've got to go out and prove it. Yeah. The proving ground is 60,000 people in the stadium who all sing along. Well, you've had that experience. What's that like? Well, it's freakish because I haven't had that experience much. You know, well, you, well, I'm saying you had it with that song. I did. And I was at a, an arena once in Orange County when she was doing that tour, which was right after 9-11. Um, I only bring that up because it, it just the air was electrified, you know. The country mm-hmm. was in a very particular state of mind, and people gathered together. And um, I had, uh, you know, I had pitched to her kind of something that she's doing now, where she's doing the theater tour. You know, I had said, "Look, why don't you just like park the whole Cirque du Soleil thing?" Like she needs career advice from me. <laughs> <laughs> More dark suits. You know what your career looks like? Mine looks. <laughs> you know, you, you walk the streets effortlessly, uh, <laughs> as if she wanted to. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I had pitched this idea to her to like, you know, you don't need Cirque du Soleil happening on stage. You don't need all that. You know, you want a new concept? Think about what Marvin Gaye would be doing if he's alive right now. Put together the most funky, badass, like five-piece band and go present yourself as a musician. What about that as an idea? You know? And she said, well, I don't know how that would play in arenas. I said, well, that's the other half of my idea. Get out of the arenas. You know, go check into the nicest hotel in every city and be, do 10 nights somewhere, you know, get s- comfortable and then e- explore it. All to say that that night, it's the first time that I'd ever seen her performance where the mask, you know, the grid of the night, which was incredibly intricate with state, you know, elaborate, you know, choreography, whatever. But at a moment when she did that song, Don't Tell Me, she came out with, she had an acoustic guitar, she sat on a stool, she had another guitar player on an acoustic guitar and she had a beatbox. And we were in the like the second row. And, you know, before that, she'd just been in character, you know, Madonna in, in corporate logo, Madonna. You know, even that's her real name, you know, there's a DM. Yeah. yeah. And um, 
You know, it's all out here. But when she sat down to do that song, she looked straight at me and she said, this is for you. And did it like two acoustic guitars and a, and a beat. And at one point, the music all stops and 20,000 people are all singing it. And that was a really unique moment, not only because it's really affirming just to, as a songwriter who operates decidedly um, out of the mainstream to have a moment like that, but it also reminded me that, you know, I've been told my whole career that my songs are obtuse, that they're too difficult, that they're not coverable. They're, you know, and I realized that it wasn't really about that as much as it was about the delivery system. Because hmm. that's got some really cryptic, you know, lines in it too. But there were 20,000 people singing them, you know, wrapped in a different package. It, it went down really differently, mm -hmm. you know? I'm not saying you're going to be your sister-in-law, no. but is it a feeling that, yeah, that's that's where the music belongs now? No, no, I don't feel that way. I might, it belongs there for some people. Uh, it's not my, it been, not been my path. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know who Bob Newworth is? Was, I know the name. Well, he was he was Bob Dylan's like uh, sidekick in the Don't Look Back film, and he's a songwriter and a painter and a beautiful man. And when we met many years ago, he pulled me aside one night like a Dutch uncle and said, "You know what your problem is?" And I said, "No, but I think you're about to tell me." And he said, "You you haven't created a persona." said, everybody that you admire, whether it's Bob or it's Tom Waits or I don't forget who else he listed, you know, they've got a, they've got a, they've created a public persona that's really persuasive and, and you need to do that or you're not going to get over. And I realized that I couldn't and I wouldn't. That's just not where I come from. I think I made a decision really early on whether I was conscious of it or not is that to like, look, I'm not trying to create a, I mean, Tom Waits has created this beautifully persuasive character that walks out ahead of his songs. And before he sings a word, you already have a sense of, of their language and their context because he has this, this character that, that you recognize mm -hmm. and it's consistent. But I realized that, that what I was going to try to do is write songs that were seductive enough that I could just disappear into them. You know, I don't want the songs to be fodder for my character. I wanted to feed myself like a hunk of wood into the fire of the songs and go up in sparks. You know, I wasn't trying to create a character that I had to like, oh, geez, what, what happens if I go out to get a paper and I'm not dressed like, like my character? You know, if you become, you know, <laughs> that's a disaster. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. Bruce, thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, it, was really, it was a pleasure was and I, I appreciate you doing, uh, you know, doing the homework. Thanks to Joe Henry for playing songs off his new album, The Gospel According to Water, and for talking to Bruce about the inspiration behind his work. Be sure to check out his new album, plus a playlist of our favorite Joe Henry songs, plus a playlist of his own, at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.